Hi, I'm Tyler Harris, and you're listening to the latest episode of Down in the Weeds. Today, we're talking with Jim Jansen, Nebraska Extension Ag Economist, and we've talked with Jim on the podcast about certain special considerations in land lease arrangements before, but today we're going to be talking about considerations for leases for land affected by different kinds of disasters. Jim, first of all, thanks for joining us today. To get started, I kind of wanted to point out that I guess specifically, as we've seen in the 2019 to 2020 Nebraska Farm Real Estate Market Survey special feature, where ag land professionals were surveyed, they were surveyed this time around regarding land lease arrangements for land affected by flooding. And obviously, last year, 2019, the flood events we saw were a huge event, not only in Nebraska, but across the Midwest. What did the survey show regarding the, I guess, just the general number or percentage, the amount of land leases that already included provisions for flooding. And and I guess to follow up, I wanted to ask, because the special feature section mentions provisions, but I don't know that we have really clarified what those provisions might be exactly. Yeah, so the underlying motivation for the question that you're asking, Tyler, we took a look at what is referred to as prevented plant uh, cropland, land that was not able to be planted, and the time frame provided by the crop insurance policy to have uh, coverage. And state of Nebraska, we got around 22 million acres, give or take a few, depending on what you consider, do not consider to be cropland. But from that, in 2019, we had about 421,000 acres of prevented plant cropland. With that being said, the question that we asked on the survey was basically to the effect, do you have effective lease provisions to account for excessive moisture? So that would be ground that would too wet to do anything with or too wet to do anything with to be able to get corn or soybeans or whatever your planning intentions were for the year. Or simply that excessive damage done by flooding of various kind or Uh, something to that nature. But uh, with that being said, what we found based on our survey panel's responses, uh, a little over three-fourths of the responses did not have any lease provisions to account for flooding damages. And when we take a look at that, do we find that to be surprising? Well, when we take a look back at the annualized data of prevented plant cropland, Typically, for over the last decade, from 2010 to 2019, we only had, on average, now, this is a fairly sizable number, but I say only because it's relative to 22 million acres. We typically only have about 81,000 acres of prevent plant. And if you would throw out 2019 as well as 2015, 2015, we had about 190,000 acres of prevent plant. If you throw those two years out, on average, we only have about 25,000 acres of prevent plant. But uh, that being said, the other responses, we said partially and yes, with respects to accounting for flooding or excessive moisture as part of the lease arrangements, about 15% of the responses reported back they had partially, and we didn't specifically ask what does partially mean with respects to things related to prevented plant and about a little over five percent said they did they do or did account for uh, flooding related matters when it came to their lease arrangements so 
when we step back and think about it, is it surprising that we see that we don't have a lot of people adjusting for that like they might have in, a, say, a lease in northeastern South Dakota or eastern North Dakota where the prevent plan is a very common, much more common occurrence compared to the state of Nebraska? Probably not. But the underlying motivation of what we put here is we can have flooding in Nebraska, and when we do have flooding, it can be a major concern that we need to address. And that being said, even if it is a very unlikely event, and it just happened to be the type of disaster we experienced in 2019 was excessive moisture, flooding, flooding that caused debris, trash, uh, movement of soil off the certain areas, how do we account for these things? And that's like kind of the underlying motivation of what we we're trying to get at. Well, and that's a really good question, Jim, because, I mean, we did see, I think the survey showed a little bit of a response to that with, with a, a slightly higher percentage indicating that in 2020, they included provisions for, for excessive moisture or flooding. And I don't, I can't remember if there was, I can't remember what the exact percentage was for adjustments to land lease or cash rental rates rather for uh, excessive moisture or flooding but that th I mean that was another factor as well and and I guess what I'm wondering is you know when you're in that situation where you've had an extreme year like 2019 and it's in the back of your mind and yeah you know it, it can happen but is it likely to happen the next year probably not you know how, how do you account for that and I guess have some kind of like you said, we're, we're looking at probably an average of, of about 25,000 acres of prevent plant each year. How do we account for that in a way that provides some kind of flexibility? Well, the uh, question that you got to ask yourself is what kind of damage do you have done on the yeah. property? Mm -hmm. uh, Alan Benalik, who also works on our land management team for the state of Nebraska, terms it as two different kinds of damage. And it doesn't really matter what you call them, but I do think the classification Yeah. So Alan and I have 
one of our suggestions, and by all means, there's no way that you have to follow any of this, but as a landowner, what's number one fixed expense that they all face? Property taxes. Yeah. Maybe, and maybe I shouldn't say fixed expense because that number can vary from year to year, but it's one expense that they typically see is property taxes. So at a minimum, you know, if you're on a cropland parcel of ground that you're going to be receiving prevent plant payments from, I would encourage you, the land tenant, to maybe consider offering enough money to at least cover the property taxes. And for the remaining portion of the rent, if it's not paid in cash, but maybe it could be paid in uh, service, service to the property in terms of remediating issues. You know, if you have to go out and pick up rocks or whatever it is with the tractor, is that worth 30, 40, 50 bucks an acre? Possibly. Maybe it's even worth more than that. But the main point that we're trying to do is we're trying to establish a property that is, to the best of our ability, brought up. So with respect to lease provisions, maybe you have a provision in there that, depending on the type of damage, maybe a portion of the rent could be paid through the use of the producer's uh, ag equipment that they own or uh, things of that nature. Now, if there's a situation where you got uh, excessive sand across the entire parcel of ground, you know, that I don't know exactly how that should be put in the lease, but that's obviously a case that most uh, farmers don't have a, a large dirt mover sitting in their back lot to do that kind of work. So that'd be a very, very special provision. And I would guess after 2019, we probably have a fairly good idea what properties in the state could potentially see something like that in the future. Yeah. Probably would have to be some along a river embankment or something like that along maybe the Platte Valley or Niagara River or wherever. I mean, probably but, some uh, in the Missouri River, along the Missouri River as well. Maybe not so much as much after 2019 compared to the Platte and the Niobrara, but certainly after 2011. And, you know, it, it's every year is different, so. Right. Well, that's right. And there are areas along the Missouri River that are in the bottoms that are quite flat, and there's other areas after you get over the bluff by the river that maybe won't. But the point is, I think over the last decade, we've seen a pretty good degree of extremes in terms of drought and wetness and kind of everything in between there. So yeah. I would encourage you to reflect over the last decade and think about those things. Drought is another form of disaster that we're not talking about in 2019, but in 2020, there's at least certain areas of the state that are getting a little concerned about how much it has rained and how dry things might be getting. Yeah, yeah. And even in, uh, I, I know in our neighbors uh, across the Missouri and Iowa, they're, they're in some areas that I think are in, oh, I want to say D2 uh, level drought right now. So it's, and of course we have some, we have parts of Southwest Nebraska, Northwest Nebraska, South Central, and East Central Nebraska that are getting pretty dry. And definitely in the Northwest part of the state that I think have had not a whole lot of precipitation since last fall from what I'm told. But yeah, that is, that's, a, that's an ongoing concern of course. And, and, and that's kind of why when you brought up the, you know, more of those long-term I guess, repairs or remediations. When we're talking about that, especially if it's something like improving soil or erosion or, you know, just getting that land up to the productivity that it was at before, is that something that, I mean, that, that people can look at from like a multi-year approach instead of a year-by-year -year basis because they are doing some of those things. Or maybe that's a little harder to do from the tenant's perspective because that's a multiple-year commitment. Yes. So let's say, for example, you have a tenant that's willing to work on a property in between their time and the use of their equipment and diesel. 
I figured out to say, let's say $150 an acre, which I mean, that's a pretty large amount on a quarter. But if there is a case like that where the tenant was able to still farm the property, but they had to do some serious work to it to cover those issues, could you take that expense and say 150 and divide that by three and take, excuse me, uh, $50 an acre over three years off on the cash rent? That way the landlord doesn't hit up front, especially if they're a retired individual not receiving any cash rent or being at a deficit, having to pay the tenant out, spanning that expense a little bit over time. I think that would be an appropriate thing, but if you do something that, like that, you're probably going to want to give an amendment to the lease, meaning it's something that you would literally state, quote-unquote staple onto the back end of the lease. I, I do think that our properties in the state, that maybe they're not getting the highest cash rent, but those that are taking the best care of the land are typically those that don't turn over on a tenant every other year. It's a long-term tenants that have the motivation to stay there because they believe that the landlord has some good faith that intends to keep renting them that property. And uh, that's why we see, you know, sometimes when somebody passes away and somebody else stands to inherit it or the property gets sold and they try the, the former tenant and things don't work out well because... You know, the values of the new owner might be different than what the older owner was. Yeah. So that's right. And there's things that can be done to the property, um, hauling of manure. Maybe there's different types of fertilizer that might last multiple years. If someone gets a sense that they're not going to be able to get to use the property every year, they might make production decisions that are not the best for the land. Uh, you can get away for a year from not fertilizing properly, property or fertilizing it as heavy as you might typically, or fertilizing it over multiple periods to reduce loss of the nutrients. So uh, I would encourage you, the best properties are typically those that um, have long-term tenant on them and someone that uh, is really taking care of it is profitable tenant makes a, a landlord money yeah, yeah because property is improved yeah and it's about that equitability for both parties of course so i wanted to ask about a few i i guess kind of a hypothetical scenarios that we could kind of look at almost on a case-by-case -case basis because i realize that's what's going to affect how we approach those adjustments or provisions in a lease and I guess I also wanted to circle back because you mentioned an amendment, and 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 I guess I wanted to go with, when when you're talking about ma actually making the amendment itself, you know, how does that process? How do you go about that process? Yeah, so depending on the type of the lease, there's some parties that you go through an attorney's office every year to do something like that. If you're going to be doing something like that, I would encourage you to go through an attorney's office again. If you have a simple lease that you've drawn up that the two of you agree to the terms of it, it's a private lease amendments you could simply type something up or if you, either of the two parties have good handwriting that are legible you can do that as well when we're talking about an amendment though in the example i gave where it's a multi-year deal where you did a ton of work in one year and you want to discount off the cash rent for the next three or five years that case and that like i said i'm not an attorney that almost might be a new contract in itself i would think of an amendment as you know slight revisions to one year of the lease. But if you have a deal where you know there's going to be excessive expenses incurred, that might be more of a multi-year deal where you're taking off cash rent for multiple years. At any rate, consult a legal or professional if you have questions on that. But my understanding is for a multi-year legal arrangement or a contract in the state of Nebraska, it should be notarized. Okay. And I think with an 
However, with an amendment, even if it's a one-year deal, I would still, like I said, I'm not an attorney on this topic, so I would still suspect that having a deal where you have two parties signing off on it, I think that, you know, signing off, dating, that kind of thing, both parties get a copy. I think that a deal like that would be a pretty good thing to do as well. Mm. I wanted to ask about, going back to this, about just another a more specific example. In, in the situation we talked about, repairing fields that, that we're dealing with, flooding and kind of move, whatever, whatever that might be, moving dirt, sediment filling in, scour holes, places that are eroded out. What about situations where the tenant is making repairs to certain structures or buildings that are damaged by a weather event? And, and I guess I'm thinking that could be flooding, but we've all, we all, I mean, in Nebraska, we get wind. Uh, we get straight line winds, we get tornadoes, we get, you know, events that can rip apart grain bins or buildings or center pivots. In those situations, I mean, because then, now we're getting down to the res- what's the responsibility of the landlord versus the tenant. And if it's an absentee landowner, then it might be more of the responsibility of the tenant. But in that situation, does that kind of follow along those same lines of, of uh, you know, remediation and, and uh, providing an adjustment to the cash rental rate? for providing those services? You know, it's one thing if you have a, say, can find animal feeding site that maybe has some uh, fencing along the perimeter of the property with a few posts getting washed out that need to be reset. It's another thing when you have half the tin off a hog barn getting tore off. Yeah. My guess is when you have a hog barn with half the tin getting tore off it, that that would probably fall under the property owner's uh, insurance policy for the assets that they own. The other thing is, even if you do have a tenant that is willing to fix some of those things, maybe it's just a simple fix just to an example of the power gets knocked out and they have to replace a ventilation fan. Well, that's a decision that the tenant might have to make in the dead of July, regardless if the landlord approves it or not to preserve the well-being of the animals there. But I would encourage a tenant before they do any of these things, which I would feel that those assets would be, uh, remember, if the tenant for some reason vacated the property, they don't take the hog barn, they don't usually take the fences with them, right? Yeah. So I would imagine that'd be a landowner's expense. But if the tenant does have the skill and the tools or whatever to do some of these things, I would imagine, unless you have a really strong relationship, you probably would want to get some kind of a contract or agreement or something of that nature drawn up between the two. And does that involve the landlord paying the tenant out for doing some of those things? Does it involve getting reduced or low-cost use of that site for a certain period of time or taking off so many dollars a year for the next period of time? Those are the kind of things you'd want to talk about. And I would guess, you know, like things like if you have a grain bin that got damaged, take some fairly specialized equipment when it comes to some of that kind of thing. And even with uh, corn, similar to uh, uh, an apartment complex, many landlords in an apartment complex have insurance on the facility, but they still require or encourage as part of the lease that you have insurance on the stored assets in it. In the case of an apartment, it might be a living room with furniture or a dresser in a bedroom or whatever. In the cases of uh, livestock or stored grain, do you have insurance on one of those things? You know, getting insurance, depending on the type of risk, may be a fairly inexpensive thing. You know, things like uh, fire, wind, flooding. Can you get insurance on all those perils of risk for whatever asset you have, livestock? Maybe, maybe not. 
fire and wind might be a cheaper type of insurance to get on livestock than flooding or lightning, for example. So it just depends on what you're trying to guard against. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the last question I had for you, Jim, and I, and I think this is something I wanted to bring up because we, we're, we're kind of in an era where more and more tenants are working with multiple landlords. You know, and, and I guess I was want, wanting some of your insight on this. So I guess what are some ways that tenants can, you know, who are in this situation can work with these multiple landlords and kind of establish an equitable cash rental rate when we're talking about properties that have been affected by weather-related disasters or just extreme weather events when you've got multiple different landlords you're working against. I guess, what, 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 what are, what's some advice that you would offer them? Well, my first inclination would be there's probably properties that have owns that are going to be more prone to some of these damages than other ones. And I would imagine if you've rented a parcel of ground for a period of time, you after the first couple of years, you probably should know where there are issues related to water or whatever the case is. Especially if you have absentee landowners that might be a little bit younger than a pair of retired landowners. Documentation of various kinds. Are there ways that you can cut clips with uh, your phone or whatever kind of technology you might employ? Sharing of information is always a very touchy topic because... Some of this precision ag data, a farmer definitely has a certain degree of money invested in this technology to produce those type of things. And that being said, how do we share information? Well, that probably comes down to a level of trust between the two parties. At a minimum, landowners probably want to know what the land is yielding. And as trying to set an equitable lease rate, one of the first arguments should be is how productive is the ground. You don't have to give them necessarily the GIS map for the property unless it's required as part of the lease. But maybe you could ask for a copy of the crop insurance record when the yield is verified or if there's any kind of documentation that's signed off on the local FSA office. You might ask for some of that type of information or you might be willing to consider that because if you just give a simple average for the property, at least you're not giving up the entire set of information. Now, if you, that goes for cash rent. Now, if you're on a crop share, a crop share, that type of information would have to be shared because, uh, you know, if you're paying the, for the use of the property as a percent of the crop, well, they're going to have to know what the ground yielded, right? Yeah. So, equitable leases start with talking about the production, addressing issues on the site, how productive is the ground. So I've heard of some land tenants, well, before they rent the ground, they're going to require a soil test because... They may not completely understand what level of productivity is on that ground. And the flip side of the coin, some landlords require that test. And before the tenant vacates the premise, they have to remediate the ground back up to whatever productivity it was when they first went out there. So it's kind of like a way on and way off after, before and after you get done with the deal. But, you know, like I said, long-term leases, equitable lease arrangements. 2020 is proving to be a very challenging situation given where prices are at Things get dry, where my crop yields go, especially on dry land or stocking rates for livestock on grazing lands. You know, you got to kind of work with a person, to, especially if they're doing a good job beyond having a hard time to cash flow the cash rent that's being paid. So I would encourage you to step up and take the opportunity to, when you're discussing these things, just say, if you're visiting with your landlord or tenant, say, oh, the cash rent is too high or I don't want to pay that much rent this year. I wouldn't start with that. I would start off talking about how the land is doing. 
how's the crops yielding? How are things looking? What can you share? There's an amazing degree of information that you can share that's not going to give away any crop yields, but what about the one ditch that cuts throughout the entire field? Can you take a photo of that? Uh, can you take a couple photos and share them via text message or tab or you know, email and the landowner can pull it open on their tablet or computer or whatever they might have. So there's a lot of things you can do there with technology that are fairly inexpensive that you as a tenant may not be comfortable providing the yield map for the farm, but it, you can share some information on just how to step back and take a few photos. We do a quarterly webinar. It's part of our quarterly web webinar we're going to talk about do you share with the landlord if you'd start doing plot counts on number of kernels per year and all that stuff in the fall? Are you going to share with the landlord what do you estimate it's going to yield? Uh, some of these things. So there's a lot of information you can share. This boils down to what do you want to do and how does it all come out? Well, thanks a bunch for joining us today, Jim. Listeners can learn more at NebraskaFarmer.com and in an upcoming print issue of Nebraska Farmer. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash NebraskaFarmerMagazine and Twitter at NebFarmerMag. And thanks for listening to Down in the Weeds. Thanks for having me.